Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast. I am joined by a man who, I don't know, I, don't, I really didn't have anything prepared, I'll be honest. Because it's just such a, a, such a sad day for you, Nathan, as an Arsenal fan, that I don't know if I can actually bring you any joy with any personal introduction of any kind. But I'm joined by Nathan Strauss. Nathan, how are you feeling a couple hours removed from that? North London Derby. This has been one of the worst sporting days for me and sporting weekends for me personally that I can remember. Um, it's in a weekend where uh, Ajax lost, Arsenal lost, UMass hockey lost, the New England Revolution lost. So not the greatest of weekends uh, for me and certainly watching Arsenal uh, crack the bed for 90 minutes did nothing to improve my mood. Well, we'll get on to the North London Derby, but... Just as a rundown of what we're going to cover today, obviously we do not have any Caleb Rhodes with us today, but that does not that is not going to stop us from talking about FC Barcelona's loss to Cadiz. But we are going to begin in the Premier League with the North London Derby. We're going to talk about some Chelsea potential title contention, which really has Nathan and I, I think, a little fired up and a little concerned because we're both not the biggest Chelsea fans. And we are also going to talk about Liverpool's resiliency. And then we're going to swing on over to Spain, talk about some Barcelona, diagnose the issues that are going on in the Camp Nou right now. Clock is winding down on the time to try and keep Messi at the Camp Nou. And then we're going to swing over to Germany and talk about probably one of the games of the season in Bayern Munich 3 and RB Leipzig 3. And you might give our thoughts on some Champions League predictions as the group stages look to round out this week. But Nathan, we're going to start... It's the game that every Arsenal fan probably wakes up when the fixture list comes out and they check to see what day they're going to be playing Tottenham away. It has to be said, this is probably the least optimistic you were feeling going into a North London derby in a pretty long time. And it ended up being a, a pretty fair result on the balance of the way both teams have been playing in the past couple of weeks. It was another Mourinho masterclass, 2-0 at home. Spurs conceded most of the possession to Arsenal. However, a lethal Kane and Son link up resulted in three points going to the white side of North London. How are you feeling, my friend? So, I mean, if there's any consolation that I can take away from this weekend, it's that I predicted the score of this game exactly correctly, um, which is a rarity because as you know, I'm normally a little bit more bullish on, on Arsenal's chances. Um, but I predicted a Spurs win to nothing. Um, these two teams line up particularly poorly from an Arsenal perspective. If you look at, how Arsenal are generally pretty bad at defending on counterattacks and also equally bad at breaking down low blocks. It would seem that th- that coincides pretty nicely to how Mourinho has uh, lined up Spurs and and their main tactical identity right now. And lo and behold, it was two counterattacks from Spurs, including one of which was that was finished off by a, to be an absolutely world world class strike uh, from Juan Minson. Even though Arsenal had a lot of possession, they had 44 crosses in the second half somehow. Um, they never really looked like getting back into the game. So all in all, Mourinho thoroughly out coaching uh, an Arsenal side that seems bereft of confidence, but also quality at the moment. Yeah, we'll get on to Arsenal and diagnose the problems with Arsenal's continued poor run of, the, run of form in the Premier League. But I think it has to be said that this is probably another feather in the cap of a potential Spurs title run, Nathan. And I think... It's wild to say this. I think right now, Harry Kane has to be one of... And we talked about... You talked about that Son strike as well. But I think there's not Son without Kane. There's not Kane without Son. However, both of their play indicates to me that these two right now are at the pinnacle of their game. Probably, as we said previously on the podcast, the best duo in world football right now. And for me, I think Harry Kane is probably especially considering Robert Lewandowski looking looking like he's playing a little bit through injury right now. Harry Kane is, to me, the best player in the world right now. Harry Kane right now has a an average rating of 7.96 on FootMob, which would put him at the fourth highest figure of all time um, amongst Champions League clubs if you were able to maintain that for a full season. So that's pretty pretty compelling numbers right there. Um, and the fact that he doesn't necessarily 
need to be leading the line in order to be contributing is I think him settling into the role that he'll end up being best at over the course of his whole career. Um, because it's not like he was ever the paciest guy to begin with. And he's an incredibly technical player, which I think we we saw a lot from him um, at a younger age about how, how well he was able to strike the ball from tight angles. And he's really been able to showcase that passing technique and also the vision um, this year and having players like Son and even Bergwijn or Lucas Mora um, running off of him just enables him to get that much more space and time on the ball uh, while teams also have to respect his ability to shoot. So it's definitely the Harry Kane, uh, the Harry Kane show right now. Yeah, I mean, I was a little worried when the lineups came out and they didn't have Ndombele because I think he's been someone who's benefited a lot from the Mourinho man management. But I think Lachelso came in, he played a, a pretty solid game. But I just think this was a very typical Jose performance, but in a way that should have the entire Premier League really concerned. Because especially in the second half when they were essentially giving the ball to Arsenal and allowing them to play in and around the box with any without any real penetrative passes, they were just saying... We know what our identity is. We can counter with absolute effectiveness. However, I think the biggest strength of the Spurs team, and this is something that Mourinho, I think, has spent an entire year since he was appointed, is that he's tried to solidify the team's shape off the ball with like the implementation of Pierre-Emil Hoiberg, who I think is, as Caleb pointed out when you're watching the game together, an 86-rated defensive midfielder on FIFA, which I never expected to say, but he's been absolutely class. I think the evolution of Eric Dyer into a pretty competent center back alongside Toby Alderweireld. Toby Alderweireld, even in the 84th minute, was putting in a challenge on Aubameyang in the box. I just think that these guys have such a clear definition of how to execute Mourinho's defensive vision that they're going to be a really hard team to stop now. Yeah, definitely not what you want to see if you're someone who uh, enjoys Spurs not winning leagues, uh, which I think most soccer fans do and i mean they are top of the league right now on goal difference with liverpool Mm. um and their upcoming match is going to be you know probably the game of the season in terms of importance on the eventual league standings at this point even though it's still i what i would say the early part of the campaign nick i know we had a little bit of a semantic disagreement earlier Mm. at the end of the day i mean it's only this is this is only match week 11 um so just just a little bit over the the, the first quarter of the season having concluded. And I sort of, I think we sort of forget because fans are just coming back into the stands now. And because it is, you know, early December that the season only started, you know, a little more than two months ago, um, which is, which is abnormal. You know, it's, it's a six week gap in terms of perception. So we're going to, we're going to end up coming out of boxing day. And instead of having the season, you know, two thirds completed, it's going to be like just about halfway done. Spurs definitely look like they should be, you know, co-favorites right now, seeing whether or not the Kane slash Son partnership regresses at all statistically is going to determine whether or not they can, right. they can like stay at that top level. And I think that's a vital point that you made about the season just starting. I think the person who's benefited the most from the COVID lockdown of like a few months ago was Harry Kane, because that was like a, a four month period where he wasn't getting the crap kicked out of him. By opposition teams, he was able to heal up from injuries that have plagued him throughout the past like two years. He's not really had a lot of rest. He's like the England captain, so his responsibility to the England national team is more paramount than other England players. I just think that he looks absolutely refreshed. I just feel like Mourinho's found a way to reinvigorate a refreshed Harry Kane into a new role. And I think he's done a classic Mourinho thing where he's just taken one player and elevated him to the peak of his powers like he's done in the past with Inter, Slatan Ibrahimovic, and the like. I mean, there, there's no doubting that. I think it says something that obviously we know Harry Kane has traditionally been one of the more valuable players in the world, but it says something that he is 250% more valuable than the most valuable Arsenal player in their entire squad, which is yeah. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. And, and just in case... We know from books like Soccernomics that the best predictor of where a team is going to end up finishing in the league is not overall transfer expenditure, but it is overall club value in terms of the, the value of your players. Um, and right now, Spurs Spurs's squad is is it looks like 135 million US dollars more valuable 
than that of Arsenal. Yeah, Gareth Bale looked absolutely dejected on the bench in the 90th minute because he realizes that like at the rate this team is playing right now, he's facing the same problem he was facing at Madrid and he can't get in the team. He can't even get I mean he can't even get and get in their Europa League team. Like I mean he he he's he's starting against clubs like Antwerp, but he's not looking very good without drawing too much from this. Jose Mourinho had a sort of backhanded comment um in the the pre-match press conference where he was like Spurs are not a club that can afford to be signing players like Willian. Um, you know, we could not offer him the wages that Arsenal did, uh, but he is still a fine player. And as much as I've actually grown to like Jose a little bit this past year, um, I think that comment is just like totally garbage, given that Gareth Bale's on the highest wages in the world. Uh, and so it's not exactly like, you know, Spurs are poor, seeing as they have outspent Arsenal by 40 million this last year and have secured a $175 million loan. Uh, from the Bank of England. Right. But all in all, Jose has gotten more out of his team. And I think that's what matters the most. I think we saw in the early days of Mikel Arteta that he was able to get this team to overperform collectively. And it led to, you know, it led to winning the FA Cup. But since then, Arsenal have just totally regressed to being the the mid-table side that we were under Emery. Um, and I think that's very concerning. Yeah, let's move on to Arsenal and diagnose some of these issues. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about this because I feel like we could get sucked into the semantics that you were talking about. But this, to me, felt like, especially in a game with this much visibility against their biggest rivals, this, to me, felt like a culmination of the past month under Arteta, if that makes any sense, right? You know, there was the loss to Villa. There was the loss to Wolves. There was Partey going down injured. But then, like, sprinkled in there, there was, like, the win against Manchester United, which now, in retrospect, looks a little bit fortunate. I think we both know that we have to give Mikel Arteta a little bit more time. He needs at least one or two more transfer windows to really stamp his mark on this team. But how concerned are you about his performance right now as manager? I'm not really concerned. Okay, uh, but why? I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll get to it. Okay. Um, I was reading David Ornstein's um, recap of the press conference today and sort of he was giving his thoughts and I tended to agree with him. And he basically was making the point that there's no reason that we should have expected consistent performances from the majority of these players who we've now been able to see under three different managers. Um, There's no reason that we should have expected that they would be performing at anything other than, you know, a mid table at best level. If you look at the way Arsenal have recruited over the last two years, it has been incredibly bad, with the exception of this past summer. And so I think that sacking Arteta right now does absolutely no one any favors. Um, and whether or not whether or not his project you know, comes to fruition within the next year is unknown. But there is not a single manager who could take the players that we have in this squad, the massive amount of dead weight, like players who aren't even playing, like Ozil, or Socrates, or players whose contracts are expiring, like Mustafi. Also, Socrates is in that category as well. Also, said Kolasinac. It's like this squad has just been bogged down with terrible contractual decisions made by people like Raul Sanyehi, who was let go from the club, or Hosfami, who's no longer with the club. Like the, the, the board structure at Arsenal has undergone so much turnover that it just makes sense to stick with Arteta um, and give him time to bring in more players who suit his vision in the next window or two. Like, like, yes, it's the form is concerning. And yes, it's, it's obviously really tough to watch. I, what I would say is the worst iteration of Arsenal that I've seen in my entire lifetime, but pretending that Arteta is responsible for anything other than like the day to day and failing to recognize that this is like a systemic issue, I think is, is foolish. Well, no, I understand that. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that all of this should fall at the shoulders of Arteta, but like you were saying in the beginning of his, his tenure, Arteta was getting these players to overperform somewhat. And either they've regressed to the mean as talent as a talent pool, or Arteta is is sort of <laughs> I, I remember a couple of weeks ago you were saying that you like wished he had shown some convention. To me, there like hasn't been any consistency or convention shown in the way that he's tried to set out this tactic his tactics. And I understand that's down to his personnel, but there's how can you win the FA Cup? in July and then now be sitting 15th in the league and not point at least one, at least, at least like a ring finger or a pinky finger at the manager. I, yeah, I'm fine with pointing a ring finger at the manager, but at the, on the other hand, it's like, 
what is he supposed to be doing right now? Like we we I mean, creating we tried a four four two today. That didn't that didn't really work. I think the the valid critiques are with his team selection. Like I would really have liked to see Ainsley Maitland Niles and Reese Nelson, who were our team's best creators in the Europa League this year, in the team today. He is probably going to come is coming under scrutiny for authorizing the Willian deal when Willian has been, you know one of the worst players that I've ever seen play for Arsenal over his what 13 or 14 games with the club so far play the kids right like if you're if this season ends up being a failure and Arsenal finish between 8th and 12th then I would want this season to be known as a time when guys like Reese Nelson Joe Willock maybe even Emile Smith Rowe were given the chance to prove themselves at the club because at the very least it'll just improve their values for when we sell them but continuing to give like Grant Xhaka time in midfield when he has been so so bad this season and William time on the wings when there's a player like Reese Nelson who created the most first half chances uh, of any Arsenal player since Mesut Ozil five years ago the solutions clearly aren't going to come from the team that Arteta has selected so far and the only way to get around that is by selecting people who are hungry and are willing to take their chances and I think we have to speak about someone who has not been taking his chances recently, and that is the Arsenal captain, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, who has failed to score a goal from open play in 10 straight matches now in the Premier League. The last time he did it was on opening day against Fulham. Speaking about the chance creation at Arsenal, you are in the bottom half of the Premier League. In fact, I believe you're 20th in chance creation in the league right now, which is a pretty damning stat. Moving away from Mikel Arteta, what do you think about the state of the players who normally perform for Arsenal on the day like Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, like Alexander Lacazette, like Danny Ceballos? So yeah, I mean, we, Arsenal are 10th in terms of, or sorry, 17th in terms of goals scored, 18th in terms of shots on target, and 20th in terms of chances created, which obviously are three statistics that contain a lot of overlap. But to me, it I, just seemed like, it. to me, I'll just, I'll, I'll say something and then I'll let you continue, but just from a neutral observer today, it just seemed like there was an ent- a complete lack of confidence. As the game went on, there was a lack of energy. The energy just got sapped out of the team's performance. And I think the same thing happened against the Wolves because I ended up watching the full Wolves game last weekend. Obama is never going to be the vocal leader of this club. But if he's not leading by example on the pitch, then I think that's a huge structural issue for this Arsenal team. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there were there were three players who I would say showed the commitment that I would want to see in a North London Derby today. And that was Gabriel Magalhaes, Kieran Tierney, and Bukayo Saka. And as disappointing as it is to see your captain be so timid and, and short on confidence, it's not unexpected. Like, you're right. Abba is not the kind of guy who's going to be super vocal. Um, he's very much a sort of happy-go-lucky character off the pitch. And when he's in good form, it works really, really well. When he's in bad form, which he has been since signing his, his three-year extension, um, it can be really troubling. And I just don't feel like there's necessarily that character in the locker there's no tony adams in the locker room you know not to sound like an old guy on sky but there's no one in the locker room who's gonna like you know put your foot up your ass no henderson yeah there's there's no henderson right like Jaka might have been that guy two years ago but he's certainly not now and you know hector bellerin a person who i would love to see wearing the armband at some point can't even throw the ball in correctly so it's like there as much as i think arsenal have improved their spine um, under under Arteta, we haven't seen any of that grit um, in the last month in particular. And I hope that that changes soon. We have a slightly easier run of games coming up, um, as well as a break from the Europa League schedule. Um, and my hope is that it gets better soon. At, at the end of the day, we are only six points away from being in sixth because of the, the crazy and perhaps more even nature of the Prem this season. But um, to, to wrap things up on Arsenal, I think, Fair to say you have an incredibly disappointed Arsenal fan here who has not yet lost his patience with the manager, but can certainly see a road where that happens. Listen, massive relegation six-pointer coming up against Burnley next weekend. I think Arteta needs to win that if he's trying to stave off, if he doesn't want Tony Pulis breathing over his shoulder uh, in the next couple of months. Uh, But yeah, certainly an interesting, divisive North London derby probably more so than ever. But let's move on to another title contender, one that played yesterday. And Nathan, I think it's time that uh, I eat some crow on this podcast in regards to Frank Lampard and Chelsea. But I'll let you start with their 3-1 win over Marcelo Bielsa's leads. Yeah, it's it's a pretty rare thing to say on this podcast that Frank Lampard 
totally outcoached Marcelo Bielsa over the course of 90 minutes without his team's best playmaker for 60 of those minutes. But despite an early Patrick Bamford goal, that's right, Patrick Bamford finally scoring in a game involving Chelsea. Um, Chelsea managed to come back, winning 3-1. They currently sit in third place, just two points off of Liverpool and Spurs. And I think it's time that we admit that Chelsea made some really, really good transfers this past summer. Edward Mendy has now kept, I think, six clean sheets in 11 games. Uh, Thiago Silva looks 36 years young out there. Chelsea have also used 26 players in the league, which is the most that they have, which is the most of any Prem team, uh, showing that Lampard has actually been quite adept at sort of finding balance amidst a squad that we thought would have been kind of top heavy, I guess. Um, and and Olivier Giroud bang into form um, as always. It's kind of nuts how he. It seems like every year we'll find a way to make incredible, incredible contributions for whatever stays relevant. Yeah, honestly, and I always think about in relation to Olivier Giroud how this tweet that I once saw where it was like Olivier Giroud could show his grandkids uh, an all-time greatest goals compilation, and they would think he was better than Pele. Nonetheless, Chelsea look like they are certainly a contender rather than the pretender that. Some of us made him out to be. Who <laughs> might that have been? <laughs> yeah, if you are a longtime listener of this show, I think you probably are aware of the fact that I called Frank Lampard a quote-unquote fraud a few months ago on our season predictor show. And I'll be honest. Do I think Frank Lampard is an elite manager? No. Do I think he's a great manager? No. Do I think he's doing an amazing job of not overcomplicating the pieces that he has. Yes. And I think if you look at this Chelsea squad, and I think Jurgen Klopp said something interesting yesterday when he was talking about Chelsea, and he said that to him, Chelsea are Liverpool's biggest threat to retaining the title, just because of the vast amount of of the vast amount of quality that they have, both in their starting eleven and on the bench. Like like you said, Nathan, they've used the most players in the Premier League this season. Like when Lampard had to sub substitute Kai Havertz yesterday, he was able to bring on Mateo Kovacic. That is a luxury that most teams in the Premier League do not have currently. He stuck with the four three three. Mason Mount is the person who's going to deputize his tactics across the pitch. He's going to be kind of like the Lampard envoy. I think one of the big critiques that we had of Lampard last season was that his defense conceded way too many goals and they never looked assured enough at the back and Lampard wasn't active enough in trying to solve that problem. He went out and got Thiago Silva and Thiago Silva is essentially coaching Kurt Zuma, Reese James and Ben Chilwell through games, not Frank Lampard. And I think that's incredibly smart to delegate that responsibility to someone like Thiago Silva who has made it to the Champions League final, played at the pinnacle of the game, played in defensive-centric leagues like Serie A, knows how to get his fellow defenders through games. I think that's an incredibly smart choice on the part of Frank Lampard. And I think another incredibly smart thing is feeding the hot hand. There is a lot of people who probably thought that Tammy Abraham was going to start the game yesterday. But Frank Lampard said, no, I've had my public problems with Olivier Giroud and our relationship isn't particularly strong. However, he was the one who scored four goals in the Champions League in Sevilla, and I'm going to trust him to continue that run of hot form in a really important game against Leeds. I don't think Frank Lampard is doing an exceptional job, but with the squad that he has and the talent that he has, I just think what's really important is that he doesn't overcomplicate things. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And I also think it's good that he has the luxury of having that bigger squad um, because it's enabled him to give um, to give the new signings, particularly Timo Werner and Kai Havertz, time to adjust Like right now, I would not go as far as to say that Kai Havertz has been a flop, but he has looked pretty bad. Um, And, you know, two assists and a goal in in 12 games is not what you expect from an $80 million transfer. And even Timo Werner, he has four goals and four assists. He really clearly bereft of some confidence going on yesterday's evidence. Yeah, he, he is not looking like the kind of the kind of lethal finisher who we saw so much of at Leipzig. And part of that is because he's being asked to play a different role. You know, he's coming off of the left more often. Uh, it's, it's definitely a tougher league, you know, the Premier League and the Bundesliga. No offense to Germany. But clearly, guys like Werner and Havertz have the quality. You saw that with uh, Werner's incredible run to set up Pulisic's goal yesterday in the 90th minute. Um, but it seems like both of those guys 
their brilliance is going to come in flashes and spurts rather than well-rounded product. Like they're both under the age of 25, obviously, like they still have time to mature. And so Lampard has the luxury of, you know, players like Kovacic, players like Conte, even, you know, I would say players who have relatively peaked in terms of their ability, like Mason Mount, playing them um, when... Kurt Zuma. And then and even Kurt Zuma, who... And guys like Rudiger, who have been reintegrated into the team as well of late. Like guys who might not be the most spectacular or the most um, feared names in the team sheet, but who are stable enough. I'm not, I'm not convinced that they'll be able to be consistent enough to challenge for this title across 38 matches. But... I definitely think they are poised for a long Champions League run this year. And I definitely think that they are a much more durable team than I thought they would be at the start of the year. Yeah, and I think the thing that I discounted about them was how vital the experience of players like Thiago Silva and like Olivier Giroud were going to be to this team. I don't think that anyone looks at Chelsea's squad and thinks, wow, you know who's going to be the difference maker? A 33-year-old Frenchman. who is, I believe, the 24th most valuable player in their squad. I know, but the man is like, you have to forget that the man won a World Cup doing this exact same thing, like bringing players... That's his second all-time leading scorer, right? He's he's closing in on Thierry Henry. So like, the man scores goals. And he's a master at bringing players into the play, integrating. Yeah, and and he's a false nine, and he can actually coexist with Werner, because if you're having Werner playing off the left, you can have Giroud through the center, and, you know, he's basically you know, a, a technical midfielder in the, in, a, in the body of a very handsome Frenchman uh, who happens to play up top. So definitely their squad, first of all, their squad is worth almost a billion dollars. You remember those figures yeah. that I mentioned? I mean, everything we were saying about yeah. everything we were saying about Mikel Arteta needing the time to actually buy some players and bring some players in. Frank Lampard has had yeah. that money in abundance. Yeah, I mean, for Chelsea's squad is three hundred and fifty million dollars more valuable, almost almost one hundred and fifty percent more valuable than Arsenal's, and one hundred and fifty more valuable, uh, one hundred and fifty thousand, one hundred fifty million uh, more valuable than Spurs. Um, at the moment so clearly Chelsea have the talent on their roster it's whether or not Lampard can coax out the consistency um, that will that will end up proving decisive for them I think Nathan do you want to roll us into the latest game of the weekend the latest game of the weekend being your Liverpool demolishing you know Espiritu Santos Wolves looking like turning Nelson Semedo into Ruben Semedo, who played for <laughs> Olympiacos. Um, On a deep cut. I know. So I, 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 that was, that was a excellent. Little, a, little, a little niche. Um, but I, I only, uh, but yeah, I mean, without having Tiago or Allison or Virgil van Dyke continue to roll over good teams, Queeman Kelleher, despite having. Uh, his name spelled incorrectly on his kit for his Premier League debut. Continued his strong form that he started uh, midweek against Ajax. And uh, Liverpool will keep rolling in their top of the league. Yeah, I think this is something that Jurgen Klopp, I think, has been really underratedly brilliant at throughout his time at Liverpool. And that is turning concerns into solutions. Because I think when you look at Liverpool's squad and you look on any app that you have and you scroll down to like Liverpool's injury list, it just keeps going. It's like a CVS receipt. Klopp has said, okay, we don't have Thiago. We don't have Allison, We don't have Virgil van Dijk. We don't have Trent Alexander-Arnold for this game. What I'm going to do is I'm going to trust Fabinho to be the same brilliantly intelligent player that he is as a defensive midfielder, but just translate that into the center back position. And I think Fabinho right now, low-key, probably one of the best center backs in the Premier League. And I, I don't think that's a stretch to say that. And I also think he trusts players like Nico Williams to do a serviceable job. And I think in a team like Liverpool that are create chances with such volume, serviceable is what you need to get you over the line when you're in an injury crisis like this. Same deal with Kuman Kelleher. He's someone that the club has a lot of faith in. Comes Came up through the academy ranks. Liverpool have never been particularly good at producing goalkeepers. However, now they have someone that they can model these, these young keepers development off of an Allison Becker, who who is at the same training ground as all these young goalkeepers, has been playing around Kelleher for the past three years now. There is a model for Kelleher. He knows exactly how Allison plays with this team and what he needs to do to replicate that to some extent. I thought his distribution is really excellent today. I think that's going to go understated. And also he made some brilliant saves. That one save that he had to make on Pedence, the chip, 
that could have like probably probably would have beaten Adrian. But Kuman Kelleher was able to shift the feet really quickly, get over to the right hand side and palm the ball away. Oh, and Curtis Jones. I think Curtis Jones has played his way into a starting berth in this Liverpool team. I think he looks so brilliant alongside Jordan Henderson and Jeannie Wijnaldum. Jeannie Wijnaldum, give the man his money. <laughs> so consistent. Probably one of the more underrated players in the world right now. And his goal today explained everything as to what makes him so brilliant carrying the ball for midfield for Liverpool. But I think Jurgen Klopp has turned to the kids, turned to the rookies, and he's turned what could have been a real issue for Liverpool into solutions. And now we're seeing players like Trent Alexander-Arnold coming back into the team and getting assists. If they can get you know, back to 75% strength, I would say we're at like 55% strength right now. The table could be looking real good for Liverpool fans come January. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's pretty much all there is to it. Like Liverpool are able to get results without their stars, um, which is a testament to, I think, Klopp's system, but also some of the youngsters that you guys have right now. So definitely encouraging signs from Merseyside, at least the red side, that is. Shall we hop over to Germany or Spain next? You choose. Let's hop over to Munich. I found this to be probably up there with one of my favorite games of the season. It was Bayern Munich 3, Leipzig 3. Nathan, obviously you're you're a big fan of the Leipzig system and the way that they go about their business being probably one of the more high-profile juggernauts in the game right now in terms of the various clubs they have, the various academies, the coaching pedigree, the lineage of that they've established in their short years as a club. And I think this going to going toe to toe and blow for blow for Bayern was a phenomenal advertisement of just how far Leipzig have come in this very short period that they've been in the Bundesliga. Yeah, I mean, Leipzig have actually played Bayern incredibly well since they got promoted. You might remember that 5-4 game in their inaugural season um, that actually happened when we were in our first ever iteration of corner kick. Um, But yeah, I mean, Leipzig played a rotated team that looked pretty, pretty good against Bayern for the most part. Um, You saw how vertical they can be, which I think is why they have found success um, against some of the weaker sides, but also why a team like Bayern, who are used to controlling possession, would be particularly vulnerable. Uh, I think it was also Justin Clivert's best game since he moved from Ajax uh, to Roma a couple of years ago. He looked really threatening. I think there are takeaways to be had for both teams from this game, right? Because Bayern obviously lost one of the anchors of their midfield in Javi Martinez. But then Jamal Musiala, who came in, he scored his third Bundesliga goal in only 200 and something minutes of, of play. And he looks like he's a real talent. And Lewandowski, you know, was creator again in sort of a similar role to Harry Kane, as we mentioned earlier. So all in all... Leipzig are genuine title contenders in the Bundesliga, um, as they have been for each of their their four seasons now in the top flight. Bayern were definitely tested at the Allianz today, at the Allianz um, for once. Leipzig have a huge game coming up on Tuesday against Man United. And I think that was sort of on the back of Nagelsmann's mind in his team selection, um, because th- that game will determine whether or not they... Uh, advance to the knockout stages but you know if I'm Man United I'm, I'm a little nervous looking at how well United attack or pardon me Leipzig attacked on on Saturday yeah I think you know maybe these maybe the people don't know but I think you certainly know that I'm a little bit torn on the corporatization of RB Leipzig no the fact that they're, they're so closely associated with you know a, a corporate product and it, I feel like it's very much like the k-pop boy band company managed version of like a soccer team if you know what I'm talking about. But I think there is a merit to the fact that when you look at the way Leipzig set out in a very similar way to Liverpool, they turn problems into solutions. Like they didn't play a striker in this game. So the answer was to have Nkunku and Forsberg work down the middle and cause Jerome Boateng all sorts of problems. And I think that's a credit to Nagelsmann, but it's also something that I think is key to the Leipzig system even before he came in, which is tactical adaptability, which is why I think so many clubs, big clubs around the world are interested in their players. Why Liverpool snapped at Nabi Keita, why Dominic Shabashlai is being looked at so prominently right now from uh, RB Salzburg. But I also think for Bayern, it's a bit worrying because the early rampage of Bayern, I think has been somewhat quelled. They obviously lost on opening day to Hoffenheim. They played a heavily rotated team. But they're coming off of two draws now. 
And obviously they played a pretty depleted squad against Atletico Madrid. But it seems like the injuries are kind of mounting up for Bayern. Joshua Kimmich is still missing for this team. Robert Lewandowski looked like he was playing through injury in this game. He was going down quite a lot. Uh, Javi Martinez, like you said, Jamal Musiala having to come in. And I'm just wondering now how many injuries it's going to take for this Bayern team to really slow down both in the Champions League and in the Bundesliga. It might take, I think a Neuer injury would be, would be huge. Obviously a Lewandowski injury would be really bad news. They're still, I would say Bayern are still the favorites in both the league and the Champions League um, at the moment. And it sort of depends on uh, how quickly their players are able to return to fitness, you know, getting Kimmich back in a few weeks, obviously the Bundesliga teams are helped by having that that two week winter break uh, that that separates the the first and second halves of the season for them. Um, so Bayern, I mean, as as much as they could, they would probably be disappointed by this draw. I think you saw that you know they were subbing on defenders after the 80th minute, so they will keep rolling. Yeah, I just wonder like if they're I don't I don't want to say that they're stuttering, but I can certainly see that like they are slowing down. They're they're becoming a little bit more mortal. No, I think that I think that's fair. I think we we saw a lot of uh, we we saw such a dominant Bayern team this past summer that we might have forgotten how you know the fact that they were forced into bringing on a seventeen year old um, shows that they're not quite as dominant all the time. And guys like Mark Roca, who they brought in this past summer, have been suspended. Um, other guys like Kimmich have gone down injured. It still is is remarkable how many different things have had to go wrong for them to be in this position. Oh yeah, that's the thing. It's like it's all down to players missing, not exactly like their per, their form personally as a team. Yeah, and I mean the only player who I didn't think played particularly well was Leroy Sané. I thought he had a, a particularly bad day. And he's still uh, coming back Leroy. from. Yeah, and he still had an ACL injury. So it's mm-hmm. like it's like again, Bayern are still a ridiculously deep and very talented and well coached team. And I'm sure that they will rebound in no time. Shall we move on to Spain? Absolutely. And a club that is similarly rudderless. um, Free fall. Yeah, free falling. Harder than the last song that you hear at a bar. Free falling indeed. Barcelona. Wouldn't that be closing time? God damn it. I'm. Oh, I don't know why those two songs are so similar in my mind. They're nothing similar when you actually think about it. (laughs) Whatever 80s song (laughs) you would like to plug in here as a metaphor for FC Barcelona, go for it. Because like Nathan said, I think certainly closing time for Ronald Koeman and certainly Barcelona are free falling down the La Liga table. Absolutely. And this this was a 2-1 loss against a team who was as valuable as Usmane Dembele. Cadiz, these are the giant killers. Cadiz, their squad is valued at 52 million. Alvaro Negredo. Alvaro Negredo, the GOAT. To be fair, Cadiz are the first team to have beaten Real Madrid, Barcelona, and Athletic Bilbao, who are the three clubs to have never been relegated since 1981-82, when it was indeed Cadiz who did it then. Um, But still, a really dire performance. They are the biblical Spanish giant killers. These guys. Indeed, indeed. But there is no reason that a team that is starting Alvaro Jimenez and a bunch of no-name La Liga Santander Segunda División, you know, rejects should be able to beat this Barcelona team. I kind of felt bad for for Oscar Mingueza, who has been called into you know the Barcelona starting lineup because he's the only fit center back, but he got the hook at halftime after a pretty calamitous error uh, led to a Cadiz goal. And indeed, Kuman ended up just dropping Frankie de Jong uh, aside Clement Langley, who himself made a pretty terrible error leading to the second goal. So really terrible, terrible weekend for Barcelona with a big game coming up against Juve. Yeah, I think the hope was that we were seeing some sort of, you know, real offensive tactic starting to form between Martin Braithwaite and Antoine Griezmann playing in a little like center forward striker combination one dropping in deep, one pushing on. So, uh, but that was totally nullified by Cadiz in this game. Martin Braithwaite looked like uh, not the Barcelona Martin Braithwaite, but the Middlesbrough Martin Braithwaite. Uh, I think Phil Coutinho looks absolutely dejected, not not looking like he's playing in his best position out there on the left wing, and also looking like he's not really committed to the Barcelona project. And why would he be? 
having been sent out on loan last season. The 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 two in midfield with Frankie De Jong and Sergio Busquets continues to not work. I'm not quite sure why Kuman has stuck with his guns here. It feels like it's one step forward for Barcelona and then like three steps back at all times. And I think if you're Barcelona right now, you have to be concerned that this is this is probably the month where you need to be convincing Messi that he should stay at the club. And I don't think they're doing that right now. Yeah, I mean, why why would he stay right now, right? You have players like Neymar openly courting him in ways that would earn you a fine in the NBA, right? Like, Messi should be salivating over the opportunity to join Pep Guardiola right now. Or even PSG. Um, or even PSG. Like He has like, nothing else to prove. Why not go to Liga? Nothing else to prove whatsoever. If this man wants to score 65 goals and have another, like, you know, have another 2011, 2012 kind of season, he could, by all means, sign for PSG on a free. Uh, Barcelona have done nothing, and and Koeman in particular, have done nothing to convince him that he should stay. And I think they, just like Arsenal, have some serious issues that need sorting out in the transfer market in the coming, you know, window or two. If they even have money to spend. Right. I mean, their players are taking a million, 150 million in pay cuts. Right. Right. Like the optics are just so bad. Yeah, I just don't know. I mean, you posed an interesting question when we hopped on. Who should be more concerned about their club, Arsenal fans or Barcelona fans? And I'm really not entirely sure. It's like they're both caught between a rock and a hard place. You know, (laughs) Barcelona should be really lucky that they won't have the luxury of fans returning to their stadium anytime soon, as Arsenal will soon enough. Because... I just don't think if you're a Barcelona fan, if you're a Barcelona fan, you want to be watching this team right now. They're almost unwatchable at times. Finally, something that Arsenal and Barcelona fans can absolutely agree on. Both of our teams are completely unwatchable. I know it's just sad because you look at Real Madrid and they're playing poorly and still winning games away to Sevilla. You look at Atletico Madrid and they're looking like they're going to they're going to just compile one nil wins to win the La Liga trophy. And Real Sociedad are playing much more attractive football than Barcelona right now. And I just don't know. Either they give Kuman some money to go get players like Memphis Depay to maybe sign Genie Wijnaldum on a free contract or bring someone like him in in January. I just don't know the way forward for this Barcelona team as it stands right now. Obviously, there will be elections in January to determine the next president of Barcelona. But I think it is just going to be, like Caleb said months ago, it's going to get way, way worse before it gets any better for this club. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. It, it could get a lot worse um, in the coming year. So definitely concerning. I feel bad for, for Caleb. But, you know, at the same time, I feel bad for myself um, as well. Do we want to do a quick a quick look at the key Champions League games? We're going to do we're going to do a podcast, I think, on Thursday, wrapping up all of the Champions League group stage results, talking a little bit about who ended up making it through what ties we might be looking forward to in the round of 16 you know, maybe some overperformers, some underperformers, underperformers. But Nathan, hit us with the key Champions League matchups that could define the competition this week. Indeed. So Chelsea and Sevilla are both through. Chelsea is going to finish on top of uh, Group E. The only game from Group F that really matters is Lazio versus Bruges, where the winner of that game um, will head into the knockout stages. Barca, Juve, I mean, Barca are top of the group and it would require a seven goal win for Juve to matter in that one. But certainly the biggest game and one that could have serious implications around the world. Leipzig take on United and PSG take on Bishak Shahir. Leipzig, United and PSG all sit on nine points, which is pretty astonishing stuff. Um, You have to assume that PSG are going to win their game against Bissaksha here. So it likely will come down to whether or not uh, United can hold out for a draw or better against a Leipzig team who will be playing at home. Any predictions for this one? I mean, I certainly don't have high hopes for Martin Skirtle and Raphael uh, holding it together against Kylian Mbappe and Neymar. So I certainly think that PSG will get the win against Isambul Bissaksha here. I think this is tough because Manchester United, as we know, are far better on the road than they are at Old Trafford. And I think they have to be confident with their current form, knowing that they can play well for 30 minutes and get results. 
They rested Bruno Fernandes at the weekend for 45 minutes. He came on and he ran the show against West Ham. I think Marcus Rashford has been playing particularly well recently. I think the real concern for them is that Edinson Cavani and Anthony Martial really aren't producing up front for them. So maybe it's another change of tactic for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to try and get something out of this game. Maybe he goes back to the diamond formation. However, I have way more faith in Julian Nagelsmann than I do in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to get a result out of this game, especially based off of what we've seen this past weekend from both clubs. I had the the displeasure of watching United PSG and United just looked so bad for the entirety of that game. And you're right. I mean, I just have no faith in Solskjaer. I think United end up winning. Um, Maybe by a penalty from Bruno Fernandes. Well, the thing is, like they, they. Uh, but, I feel like there's so there, there's so much less uninhibited when they play away from home. I think we saw that against West Ham. We saw that against Southampton. I think when they play at home, there is just some like hoodoo that comes over them that makes them really anxious to play at Old Trafford. And I don't really understand what it is. We're starting to see players like Paul Pogba start to come into some good form. Away from home, United are are dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. I think it'll be a really interesting game. You know that that Leipzig will be anxious to get back to the round of 16 where they had so much success last year. There are some other interesting, you know, potential decisive games coming up on Wednesday too. So maybe, maybe my shock pick, it's Salzburg versus Atletico Madrid in Austria. And if Salzburg win, they will go through and send that Letty careening into the Europa League. I think Salzburg pull it off. And really? That, yeah, that's my extreme hot take. Um, I actually, I, I, there, I have no reason for thinking that they'll be able to do this. But Salzburg did completely and comprehensively outplay Bayern uh, in Germany a few weeks ago. Um, and I think it's totally possible that they... I know, but then Bayern beat them, blew them away, right? Yeah, I think it's just totally possible. It's, it's it's very possible in my mind that Salzburg beat Madrid, um, while mm-hmm. Bayern are obviously cruising to victory um, in Group A. But I think you know probably the, the the games on Wednesday that have the biggest implications are those in Group B, where any team could advance between Mönchengladbach, Shakhtar, Madrid, and Inter. Do you have predictions for the two? teams who you think make it out of that group it's so tough because i think madrid have been so poor in the champions league this season however i think we know that the champions league means everything to that club and i think not being in the round of 16 the prospect of real madrid not being in the round of 16 of the champions league is almost unthinkable to me so i just think that like somehow they find a way to pull like a one nil result against mooching Lockbach out of their asses to save Zidane's job. But I also think it could be a case of where they just don't have the personnel to pull off miracles anymore. I mean, I would personally love a situation where um, Shakhtar just demolish Inter and then Mönchengladbach draws with Madrid, sending Madrid into the Europa League on on points. Um, I mean, I certainly think Inter Inter are going to beat Shakhtar because I just think Shakhtar against every other team in this group have been absolutely woeful. Yeah, I, I actually, I think, I think Shakhtar are gonna, are gonna, I think Shakhtar are gonna end up going through. Mm. I think it's going to come down um, to to which of the Real versus Mönchengladbach teams will go through. Right. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm torn. I, I don't know if Madrid make it. I also think they could. There's the two possibilities I have are either they sneak a one nil, or Mönchengladbach ends up knocking them out. Mönchengladbach have have been scoring tons of goals. To be fair, they did beat Shakhtar four 0 but they can't they, keep they can't keep clean sheets against Inter and Real Madrid. That's been their problem in this group, right? That is that that is true. It's been it's been tough going for them. So it'll be really interesting to see um, how or if they're able to hold on. Mönchengladbach drew at the weekend, um, and obviously Real Madrid have been sort of up and down on form. Uh, I guess the only other game that really matters this weekend will be between or this week rather will be between um, Atalanta and Ajax, uh, which will determine which one of those two teams ends up going through. I have a sneaky suspicion that Atalanta will end up drawing this game, which would send them through a point ahead of Ajax. But Liverpool have comfortably clinched first place in that group, which should ensure them with an easy enough matchup in the next round. Yeah, I've watched both of the team. I watched both Ajax and Atalanta. I just think I, I fancy Ajax to beat Atalanta. I've just been way more impressed 
with Ajax than I have been with Atalanta in this group. But I also think Ajax or Atalanta are just like a way more experienced team just on age alone. I think they'll be wanting to repeat their kind of miracle Champions League run of last season and prove it's not a fluke. I don't know if Ajax have the goals in them to beat this Atalanta team that we know is free scoring. I think that's their big problem is that they create chances. They created chances against Liverpool that they couldn't put away. I'm not entirely sure that they can get the job done with their finishing against Atalanta. Yeah, I mean, we saw them jump out to an early 2-0 lead in the uh, in the reverse fixture, and then the, the power of Duvan Zapata ended up costing them. It'll be interesting because Ajax need a win, and they can't play for the draw. And we know that Atalanta aren't necessarily the best team at defending. They tend to ship goals in rather large numbers. So this could be a very entertaining fixture for all of the neutrals out there. Yeah, like I said, we'll be getting a podcast to you on Thursday, wrapping up all of this Champions League drama. But Nathan, quite a busy weekend once again. A busy weekend indeed. And right now, just so, just one esoteric tidbit before we wrap up. Cruz Azul, the team that has become famous for their blowing of leads and titles had a 4-0 lead on aggregate going into the second leg of their semifinal game today. It is currently 3-0 at halftime. <laughs> Dude, wait, who are they playing? Pumas. Oh, so wait, is that, be, the, um, is that the Gignac team? No, no, Cruz Azul beat Tigres last game. Different, different oh, feline Tigres. team there. Um, but Cruz Azul um, making all of us, us Cruz Azul fans, a little bit nervy mm. right now in traditional style, but we wouldn't have it any other way. Well, by the time this podcast goes up, Cruz Azul fans will either be happy that they've uh, qualified or that they've into the final. Yeah. We'll be happy that they've managed to win this final or they'll be ruining a historic capitulation in Liga Amekis. I guess with that being said, it's been quite a hectic weekend, perhaps not the greatest weekend from an Arsenal perspective. I've been Nick Vinden. Nathan Strauss. We will see you all next time. 